whereby we can all read the past in different ways. And that's maybe where we entered this millennium with. But increasingly, we're at a point now where how we think about the past has something to do with endurance and uh, duration. There's an emerging sense of the unfinished nature of the human past. And I think the humanity here is central as well, as lived experience, as memory, as intergenerational, as survival, as endurance. The notion that the past is just as unstable as what we say or write about the past is. In the tradition of the Brady Lecture, every year the Goethe Institute invites acclaimed speakers to share their perspectives on cultural topics and pressing issues that societies are facing in the United Kingdom, Germany and worldwide. For our belated Goethe Annual Lecture 2021, we were enthralled to invite Professor Dan Hicks as our speaker on the 14th of January. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. Talking Culture is a platform for thought-provoking discussions about the future of the UK, Europe and the rest of the world. Dan Hicks is a highly acclaimed British archaeologist. He works as a curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford and also as a professor of contemporary archaeology at Oxford University. In 2020, his book, The Brutish Museums, was published and quickly gained popularity across the globe. In fact, it is often cited as one of the must-reads in archaeologist circles. In this book, he tackles the complicated topic of colonial theft, questioning whether museums should return artefacts to the countries they originally belonged to. The discussion around the return of artefacts resurfaced in 2013 when the German Museums Association, otherwise known as Deutsche Museumsbund, issued recommendations on how to treat artefacts with human remains in museum collections. During these discussions, a new concept was founded known as Unrechtskontexte, or Context of Injustice in English. Since then, the concept has remained central to the discussion surrounding scientific racism. In our lecture titled Unrex Contexta, Dismantling Colonial Legacies from Berlin to London, Dan Hicks posed the following questions. How should we understand the Unrex Contexta of colonial legacies today? either by the standards of time or by the values that we hold today? And how can these legacies be meaningfully dismantled? This podcast takes a look at recent events in Europe and North America, from pulling down statues as a form of protest, to renaming buildings of public reverence, ultimately questioning, as a society, how can we make amends for the past And what are the next steps for upholding anti-racism in the future? Before we chat to Dan, let's hear a snippet from his presentation. The notion of the context of injustice and what that means for museums. So in 2013, the uh, the German Museums Association issued uh, guidance around this notion of context of injustice 
that said that that notion should inform assessments of how we think about objects in museums. But importantly, it said that those contexts were not only in the past, but also could include a context that continued to have an effect into the present. So I think as we look back on that guidance another 10 years on, that question of the unfinished nature of certain sort of contexts of injustice now finds itself at the centre of uh, debates that are about the legacies of empire, about scientific racism, in inverted commas, and about the theories that we inherit from the past over cultural supremacy. So the reactions against those, how to deal with those legacies, include the African-led movements of the fallism movement and the restitution movement. We've seen it include our naming uh, buildings and streets and ev even lectureships or professorships. And the wider conversation over how to decolonize what we teach. But it also here in London includes the non-removal of Geoffrey at the unnamed uh, Museum of the Home. And even in Berlin, has seen the active installation of a Protestant cross that has gone on to Humboldt Forum uh, there. So really, I want to ask two questions here that build on but move on from uh, the book that we heard about earlier, the British Museums, that was about the, about the arguments for the return of the Benin Bronzes. So I want to ask in the first half of this lecture, how should we define the context of injustice of colonial legacies by the standards of the time or by the values we hold now in the present. And then in the second half of the lecture, I want to really look at what it means to dismantle the infrastructure of enduring colonialism that's in the arts, in the heritage, in the education and the museum sectors. So we hear a lot about the decolonization of our museums, and I think it's worth historicizing that notion and we can reach back in the literature to, if you like, the Tuck and Yang observation that decolonization is not a metaphor. We can reach back further to Audre Lorde's sort of observation that the master's uh, tools will never dismantle the master's house, that we need to think hard about the, methodo about the methodologies and the uh, disciplinary framings that we have and how they are part of the problem we're trying to solve. But we might also reach back even further to Fanon, you know, and hear actually his, his observation in his essay on sort of racism and culture, where he makes, I think, a crucial distinction for us in between what we might call, what he calls vulgar racism, the racism that's focused on sort of the body, on arguments over science and nature, the notion of sort of difference between you know, people as having some biological difference or basis. But then he says in the 19th century, really soon alongside that vulgar racism, a second sort of racism emerges. And that's the one with which we're only now really here in Europe and America, I think, starting to come to terms which is cultural racism. He talks about the expropriation, the spoliation, the raids, the murders, the sacking of cultural systems that were forms of racism on a cultural level. How do we come to terms with those legacies? How do, how do we work with what Fanon says we need to do, which is to think about racism in 
you know, in the field of culture. So the Rose Must Fall movement, as it emerged in South Africa in 2015, I think helps us to think about this, because Rose Must Fall, of course, was a generational moment. This was a point at which, after the end of apartheid in 1994, there were students at the University of Cape Town who found themselves in 2014, 2015, as 20-year-olds or as 19-year-olds, who continued to experience the institutional racism and also the everyday racism there at UCT, that had been a part that was part of that legacy of apartheid. So the argument there was that the image of Cecil Rhodes, the cultural image, the artwork at the heart of the campus, was a part of how that worldview had been made to last and made to endure. So writing at the time of Sheila Mbembe in 2016, here's a reference as well to his most recent book, which I, I absolutely recommend to everyone here. He talked about that moment as a, as a negative moment. And a negative moment, as, as he says, is one in which old antagonisms remain unresolved, but new ones also emerge. How, at that point, then, are we able to demythologize whiteness? How can we physically deconstruct that image of Rhodes that normalized and naturalized that form of cultural supremacy, that form of inequality, using art and culture and the academy in order to do so? Now, of course, anyone that's read Fanon would not be surprised by the fact that we're talking about statues and racism because, you know, in the early 60s, he was writing already about the notion of later colonialism as a world of statues, the statue of the general who, who led the conquest, the statue of the engineer who built the bridge. Every statue, every colonizer erected that was on the colonial terrain never stopped repeating the same single message, we are here by the force of our bayonets. And of course what we learn is that locatedness happens in the metropole as well as at the margins of, of empire. Here is uh, Cecil Rhodes outside Oriel College holding in his right hand the slouch hat of the imperial yeomanry. He's in the suit of the businessman, but he might as well be holding a machine gun in his right hand, really, in terms of what this image means. So my, colleagues, my colleague Simukai Chigudu wrote in The Guardian about his experience of being part of the Rose Must Fall movement, that he was surrounded in Oxford not by the ghosts of colonialism, but by its living dead. This thing is not dead. It continues to continue in the present as, as the Roads Must Fall Oxford movement observed, as that observation, that South African-led movement that pointed out the enduring nature of empire found its way to Oxford, where, of course, there are these images of Rhodes. But, of course, at All Souls College, there was the Codrington Library, there was Rose House, there was the old Indian Institute. These images of empire and supremacy were built physically into the built environment and, of course, into the Pitt Rivers itself, which is where I work in the museums. So that sense of those normalizations of these worldviews being built into our lived environment, of course, in a Berlin context, has been absolutely the, the heart of attempts also to rename streets. 
So this is the main argument I want to get across here, really, I think. Uh, and I mean, without sort of rushing to a conclusion, let me just sort of tell you, yeah, let me put my cards on the table at this point. My argument is that we're at a generational and an international fundamental shift in how we think about and understand the past. Historically, we could say that we are moving, that we, as we look back in the 1890s, with the translation of Ranker into German, there is, a mo there is a moment of sort of Rankian empiricism, vs. eigentlich gewesen, how it really was, that's what we're looking for from our history, that, that continues through to Hugh Trevor Roper's injunction in the 1950s that a historian must love the past, that idea of uh, history as fact coming together with a certain form of pride and of nationalism. Being replaced, really, in a, interestingly, in the decolonial context of the, uh, the 1960s with a sort of relativism, not a pastness, but a presentism. We might go to E.R., yeah, might go to E.H. Carr on his notion of freeing oneself from the dead hand of the past, or one, or one might look forward to notions that the past, you know, is interpreted that we receive the past and we make of it what we will, that there might be multiple readings of the past, a multivalency for the past, a cosmopolitanism and a multiculturalism, whereby we can all read the past in different ways. And that's maybe where we entered this millennium with, but increasingly we're at a point now where how we think about the past has something to do with endurance and uh, duration. There's an emerging sense of the unfinished nature of the human past. And I think the humanity here is central as well, as lived experience, as memory, as intergenerational, as survival, as endurance. The notion that the past is just as unstable as what we say or write about the past is. I'd like to start by picking up on one of the final points you made in your lecture about the power of art and the durational nature of art. You've sort of counterposed that with the materiality of statues and their purpose. I know that you've been working quite a lot with a few artists and I was wondering if you could share with us the potential of art to deal with some of the more complex questions you've been posing. Um, so yeah, I mean obviously at the moment a lot of my work has been focused on questions of restitution and a lot of, I guess I mean this evening's lecture was an attempt you know, to take some of those arguments we're making about how to dismantle in a very positive way uh, you know, those aspects of museums that are hurtful, hurtful to some of our, of our audience in the present how to, uh, how to widen that out into a more general sort of conversation but in terms in terms of art in the museum that's that has a crucial role in terms of restitution because of course uh if you like to return something which isn't yours you know in those cases where its return is being demanded where often these objects are sacred or royal objects of such importance which maybe in the western institution are just hidden away in storage or are rather badly displayed that need not be a loss. It can be a positive, a gain for the recipient community, but also we can think about what to do with the space. So the commissioning of art, and especially contemporary African art in those contexts, I think 
has a central role. Why is it, so many of my Nigerian colleagues ask me, that if you want to see you know, African art in Oxford, you've got to see art that's 500 years old or from ancient Egypt? You know, why, why can't... And, and yet we have these uh, contemporary art spaces full of contemporary art, but with virtually no sense. So it's mapping itself back onto those same old uh, geographies. Um, so, yeah, I think not only anthropology museums, but the whole of the art institution, whole of the art, art world, has a fundamental job here to see part of the outstanding debts the things we're trying to take apart as not just being stolen objects, but being the exclusionary practices that mean that we're missing out so much. I mean, so much of the best contemporary art at the moment is from the continent of Africa. It would be so wonderful to find ways where, you know, a part of these ways of building new uh, forms a partnership, a more equitable partnership, maybe involves African artists. So I definitely think art... I mean, artists are often ahead of the game on these things, and it can... You know, they're often sort of more than aware of this than the academics and the curators are. So allowing space for artists without art washing. And I think that's been uh, one of the great criticisms of, of, of Humboldt Forum, and that was, that was one of the concerns there. Watch out, your critique is going to be sort of co-opted. We need to be very, very careful about that. This reminds me of Stuart Hall's comment in Whose Heritage about the potential of contemporary art to be transgressive in relation to our idea of heritage. The other question I wanted to ask was more along the political lines of things. You've talked a lot about Europe and the Humboldt Forum. Within a post-Brexit environment, what is the potential from a British point of view to evolve a kind of European practice or series of actions at a European level on these questions. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really important point. And, and I guess I should start by underlining how important to me the Oxford-Berlin uh, alliance has been. So the University of Oxford is... Incre- you know, we've been building this alliance with the four... Uh, Berlin, or the main four uh, Berlin-based uh, uh, universities that in the context of Brexit has been su- such a lifesaver to com- allow us to continue to have these conversations across uh, uh, European nations. I think so much of the most interesting work happening on these themes is happening by comparing what's and learning from what's going on in France and Germany and Belgium in, so in the UK. But those dialogues increasingly have to happen not just in isolation in Europe. We have to be foregrounding African voices in these conversations. We have to find ways of overcoming visa problems. We have to find a new form of internationalism rather than universalism. So the uni- and so really, I mean, the internationalism of these sort of conversations is, is fundamental. Uh, how do we rebuild a politics of internationalism in these times? You know, I think... I mean, I think that's crucial because we've never... I mean, if we think about anthropology museums, we've never needed spaces like, you know, the public space of anthropology more than we do at this moment in history. We need, absolutely crucially, these spaces where we can celebrate art, ways of making, ways of seeing, ways of of understanding, uh, believing, outside of a Eurocentric lens. 
but that doesn't mean we have to do so with on these horrendously unequal terms or for a project that that is seeking to ground itself in cultural supremacy. So I definitely think the European conversations are very positive. And I think the more you have those conversations, especially, I mean, given the event today, in between, if we just sort of talk about the, about the Anglo-German sort of conversations, I mean, you learn so much by saying, well, in some ways here in the UK, here's something that's happening that isn't happening in the Berlin context, but equally vice versa. We've got so much to learn in terms of the politicians. And, Oh, I mean, I wish that we could have a culture secretary that was anything like what, you know, what we now see in the German context with, with uh, Rote, you know, so, so let's hope, fingers crossed. Moving on, I'd be interested in hearing you speak a bit more on this idea of standards of the past. We saw it in Boris Johnson's tweet, and you've also used it as a framework for part of your talk. I'm thinking about scholars such as Priya Gopal with uh, their piece Insurgent Empire, who very convincingly demonstrated that there weren't a different set of standards in the past. In fact, it was wrong then and it's still wrong now. Do you have any more thoughts on this? And so absolutely, yes, I do. Yes, I mean, the first thing is absolutely everyone, as well as the books I mentioned there, certainly should go and read, uh, you know, you know, Insurgent Empire by Priya Gopal, uh, absolutely fantastic book that that tell ex exactly you not only tells the story of um, anti-colonialism, but actually makes a series of really important points. That of course, I mean, all of us know. You know, it's so ludicrous to be told, "Don't rewrite history." When, of course, I mean, that's what historians do. Um, it's a bit like saying to archaeologists, don't find anything else, you know, or to artists, don't make any new work, you know, just kind of talk about the old stuff. How have we got to this point in here in this, in, in this country? And I, I do think it's a peculiarly, you know, not even a British thing, it's an English thing, it's a Westminster thing. Because if you look at the devolved nations, they are way ahead of where Westminster is on this question. If you look at Wales and how, 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 they're, how they're looking at these questions, Edinburgh or Northern Ireland, a completely different frame. But how did we get to this point? You know, I think it was just, I mean, ultimately, obviously, it's fascism or neo-fascism uh, or sort of proto-fascism, the idea that the, hist that, that the past can never change. Um, but it's also, I think, reminds us that history has so often been written as if it were erecting a statue. And that the time frames between Rankian historiography and the, this sort of global thing, certainly transatlantic history of the Confederate statues going up, roads in South Africa, Colston, roads in Oxford, there's a certain way in which one vision of the world was written into history, and that, they're absolutely right. That that you know, if that changes, then fundamental things change because that model of cultural whiteness that's that's been written into how we think about the past will be undermined. Yeah, I mean, I think it's inevitable. So I just think we have we can't stop being historians, though. The one thing you didn't mention in your talk was school education. 
History lessons are supposed to teach children about accounts of the past, yet there is still a shocking amount of ignorance from the younger generations on some of these very important topics. Is this because these subjects aren't being taught properly at school and maybe as a result children are having to use other resources such as the internet or social media, which in itself can be extremely problematic? So then I would question, what role do you think school education has and how does that relate to some of these actions you've been talking about? And so, yes, absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, for any history teachers, either online or sort of here, and certainly for parents of, of those being taught history, absolutely, this, this could not be a more important point. That so much of this, I mean, there's a big Queen Victoria-sized black hole, you know, in our national consciousness, whereby we think of the past. I mean, maybe, so we've got abolition and emancipation, and I think a lot of, I didn't have time in the lecture to talk about you know, what I think many of us feel was the missed opportunity of 2007, which was the 200-year anniversary of abolition. So many of us in the early 2000s were so positive about this is going to be the moment for museums and education to face up to these histories. In fact, at that time, actually, under, under Gordon Brown, with his idea of kind of Britishness and all that stuff, it turned into a celebratory narrative that... It turns into, so you so the British won abolition, they won emancipation, then you've got the two world wars and one world cup, and it's a very positive sort of national story. And then we miss, you know, between, uh, you know, emancipation 1838 and the start of the First World War, I mean, we're missing, maybe the Crimean War might be in our consciousness. But apart from that, we just, just miss the fact, even though in every year of Victoria's reign, there were multiple wars against empire. We were, we were building empire with such violence, with such ongoing, you know, what in, in my last book I called World War Zero. So historical consciousness is central. But I also think, I guess a part of the point of this lecture was to say, that it's not only about, so some will say this is just about telling the history and we just need to face up to it, but it's more than that because, because we're living it as well. We're living with, the, these histories are not over. So I think facing up to those histories, a big part of the, of the reason they're not on the curriculum is that then we'd have not only to be having a conversation that's historical, but one, one that's sociological and that's anthropological, that's cultural, that's about the present day. So, so yeah, I absolutely applaud anyone, you know, in the current uh, situation in education who's managing to teach on these questions sort of one way or another. You put the Bristol crime up as part of your presentation and there is something about giving back or taking back around this crime. Why is it or should the West even be involved in this decision-making process at all? Shouldn't these countries or individuals instead simply just take these things back? I mean, the Berlin Wall wasn't dismantled, it was torn down. <laughs> right. OK. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the... I mean, it depends, really, whether you see the removal of Edward Colston as, as an act, or how you understand that act. Um, I mean, I attended my first event to get rid, to get rid of the old racist bastard in, in, in 1999, 1998 even, I, th I think it might have been. Um, and there was a 25-year process 
you know, which was my generation, um, actually that failed to try to do the sort of civil society, the English heritage, his historically historic England, sort of working with the council, working with all those usual formal processes, and it simply because of merchant venturers, because of sort of whichever vested interest it was, simply didn't happen. The, the, the formal process didn't work. So that, that's a unique example, though. And I think it's so important that with all of these restitution claims, with all of these questions over the toppling of statues, it's a case-by-case -case approach. I mean, the people in sort of Bristol in the June of 2020, they didn't hate statues, like all statues. They hated racist statues, or one particular racist statue that had been erected with such sort of malintent with, you know, with, and that was continuing to enact that violence in the present. Um, so in terms of what that means for restitution, is the toppling of Colston a model for restitution? Well, fallism, you know, is an African-led movement that has existed since the 60s and 70s. Think of Algeria. Think, of course, of the Rosemus Fall movement in Cape Town. So too is restitution. I mean, the first objects were returned to, to Benin, you know, as early as 1938. So I think we have to remember that these movements are are African-led movements, that the way in which the demands can be acceded to uh, need not be violent or uh, performative in the same way. In some ways, they can often be very boring. They can be administrative. They can, as I've argued in the book, they, they start with the very boring curatorial work of working, making lists. Um, so I'd say, really, there's a way in which one might write a book as if one were, or indeed make a list, or create a museum as if one were tearing down a statue. And that's what I'm interested, in, I think, in all of us thinking about doing next. You were listening to Dan Hicks, Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at the University of Oxford, curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum and author of The Brutish Museums. Dan was our guest speaker for our belated Goethe Annual Lecture 2021. In case you missed the event, you can still watch the live stream on our YouTube channel, Goethe UK, or visit www.goethe.de London for more information on our annual lecture series and topics such as post-colonialism and cultural heritage more generally. The Goethe Institute is the culture centre of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German courses, cultural programmes, events, a fully equipped library and much more, both in our institute on Exhibition Road and also online. To find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at www.goethe.de forward slash London. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. What role will culture play in a post-Brexit, post-pandemic and post-colonial world? We also question how will culture contribute 
to a future that prioritizes sustainability, collaboration, diversity, and inclusion. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production by the Goethe Institute London.